verses from Psalm chapter 5. The end of Psalm 5, it says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. You know, just that phrase, let those who love your name exult in you. And, and really, that's what we're here this morning to do. Uh, for those of us that know Jesus and love his name, we're here to exult in him. We're here to raise his name and lift it high. Um, we're here to remind our hearts that he should be first in our lives. So uh, we're just going to play for a minute. Uh, we really invite you to uh, bow your heads, to just confess to the Lord your need for him, uh, to prepare your hearts and, and to just pause for a moment and, and do that. It's always our pleasure to uh, welcome new folks into our fellowship and membership here at Creekside. And this week, Steve and I visited with Gene Arms. Gene, if you could stand up, please. Gene, have a, have a stand. All right, he's a tall guy. And we heard Gene's testimony and his love for the Lord. And just a few details about Gene. He was born in May of 1919. He served in World War II in the Navy. He has had two wives. Both have passed on to be with the Lord. Gene has two kids, a daughter that's 77 and a son that's 61, I believe. He has grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. And Gene came to know the Lord when he was 22 years old. And he still loves and serves the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to welcome him and to our fellowship, membership at Creekside Church. Welcome, Gene. I'm going to pray for you. Yes. <laughs> our Father, we just lift up Gene to you. We thank you for giving him 100 years of age. Lord, that's awesome. You are so honored, so beautiful, so precious. We love you. We thank you that you love us and you care for us. And we pray for your blessing to Gene and his life, his kids, his family and to his involvement in Creekside Church. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. And just a quick reminder, as Steve is coming up, uh, October 6th, if anyone else is, is interested in finding out more about membership at Creekside or just more about Creekside in general, we would invite you to join us on October 6th. We are going to be having another Get to Know Us lunch. And uh, this is kind of an informal time to hear more about Creekside, ask questions, and it's kind of the, our first step in, in the membership process. So if you're interested in that, reach out to Mark Klein or, or to Steve. Yeah, we had a great time with Gene the other day. That was a blessing to us. So Gene, thanks for welcoming us into your home and letting us enjoy getting to, to know you a little bit better. I'd like you to join me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Hey, Father, thank you for your mercy and for your grace, for your goodness, and for your love for us, for your word, which speaks to our hearts. And I pray that as we spend some time and just a few verses of scripture, 
uh, that your spirit would speak to each of us because you know what we need to hear. And I pray that you would take the, the words that come out of my mouth and let us hear what we each need to hear for your glory and, and for the goodness and the advancement of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in this study on doing good works to build goodwill in order to share good news. And as I was thinking about it, as we conclude the, this little short series today, I was thinking, you know, some might misconstrue what we've been saying as an endorsement of the following phrase which has erroneously been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, okay? So this phrase is commonly thrown around, and the phrase is this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. There's a false dichotomy set up there in that phrase. That means that the, 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 the things that it seems that it, you, you should be just doing good works, that's proclaiming the gospel so that you don't need to share good news. We need to address it. I remember sitting and discussing at length with a good friend of mine and telling him that caring for the poor, the widows and the orphans, as good and great and wonderful and as necessary as those things are, is not sharing the gospel. And he was like, oh, yes, it is. And I was saying, oh, no, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it's not. The problem is that we uh, think that we know more than what the Scripture says, and so we have this phrase that says, you know, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, so that somehow we think we don't have to use words to share the gospel, which is not true. Because the Scripture is absolutely adamant that nobody is saved from God's wrath through good works. Theirs or anybody else's. No. We're saved by the grace of God through faith. I want you to think about this, that uh, the, the, the doing of good works is intended to build goodwill, which serves as a bridge from the unbeliever to God, which encourages that person to put their faith or the trust in Christ so that they can, as we looked at last week, glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. They could glorify God on the day when he visits and he shows up and, and he brings to them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and they turn to Christ. They go, yeah, all these good works that these Christians were doing makes sense to me now. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 reveals to us that the gospel is verbal. When Paul told the Romans, he says, How then shall they believe in him in whom they have, or how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher, or unless someone is sent? And then he goes on in verse 17, and he says, now faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, sharing the good news is verbal. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing good works to build goodwill, but we do that in order to 
share the good news. And so this morning, we're going to wrap up this series, this three-part series, and look at this idea of sharing the good news. And so from basically 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we're going to give three considerations or look at three considerations that govern our sharing of good news. And we're going to look at, there are going to be a lot of other passages referred to, but this is the essence of it. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open, look at your phone or your tablet or whatever device you have and get to 1 Peter chapter 2, or if you don't know what else to do, in the seat in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you, there is a Bible, and you can turn to that. I think the page number is on the bulletin, and I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 9 and 10, and then hopefully set the context of verses 1 through 10, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, it says, for you were not once, you were once not a people, but now you, oh, I'm sorry, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the text, there is first of all a motivation that's given. Here in verses 1 through 10... Peter is calling the people, these, uh, these scattered aliens, as they're referred to in chapter 1, verse 1, he's calling them to live the authentic Christian life in light of their privileged position as believers and, then to, and, and, and the promise of glorification. That's verses 1 through 10. Verses 1 through 3, he's given a command. You, you know, they're, they're facing a lot of opposition as Christians scattered abroad. So now I want you to live in, in light of your privileged position as Christians, in light of the glorification that's coming at the end, I want you to live authentically now in the face of this difficult opposition. Verses 1 through 3 is the command, and then verses 4 through 10, he teases out what, the, what their actual position in Christ is, what these privileges are, and then how they are challenged to live authentically in light of it. I want you to consider with me two motivational factors. We're going to look at the privileges first. Our privileges. He says, but you, in verse 9. Who's the you? Contrast between the people that he's just referred to in verses 1 through 7. Particularly, verse 7. Those who are rejecting Christ, their identity and destiny is completely different than the ones he's now addressing, which is the you, but you. Your, your eternal destiny and your true identity is completely different than those who reject Jesus. So what are those privileges? What is the difference between those who reject Christ, trip over the cornerstone, or those who accept Christ? He lists several privileges, and I'm giving them these particular names. You have an outline in your bulletin. You don't have to agree with this, but basically it's our specific election. We are a chosen people, he says. A chosen race. And the language is taken from Deuteronomy. I'm not going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6, but each one of these references can be traced back to those passages of Scripture. Okay, in some form or generally in that way. But it's taken there because the text says that God reveals that 
God chose believers just as he had chosen Israel to have a special part in his redemptive plan. He says, now it's these people. The children of God had uh, turned their back on him, and so they were punished, and, and God opened a door for us so that we could enter in and be part of that plan. Scripture teaches that a believer's salvation is the result of God's sovereign choice. How do I know? Well, this is your chosen race, but there are other passages. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you can see it on the screen. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The Gentiles had heard the gospel and noticed the last phrase of verse 48. And as many as had been appointed unto eternal life believed. They had been chosen by God. Election is an unearned, undeserved choice by God and his sovereign purposes to bring us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's not earned. It's nothing we've done. Some of you are familiar with the story of Michael Orr. Now, Michael Orr was a kind of a homeless, so to speak, young boy in Memphis, and the Tui family took him in and adopted him. And he grew up in their home, and then he went on to become a professional football player for the, the Ravens, and then he's played for other teams. But they adopted him, not because of his merit, not because of his value, not because of his, because of his virtue, but because they chose to love him. And so the movie, The Blind Side, is a result of that gracious act of love and, and consideration on the part of the Tui family. And some would say, well, yeah, but God's election talk is not fair. That God would choose some people. Paul anticipates this struggle when he speaks with regard to God's choice of Jacob in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 14, uh, the, the question comes up. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And then Paul answers the question. No, there can't be injustice with God. And then in verse 20 of chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul says this, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way? Is God unjust in that he would choose to rescue some people from condemnation and deliver them? No, he's not. Think about it this way. Who deserves God's mercy? Who? Which human being on the face of the planet deserves God's gracious, loving kindness to sacrifice his son to die on a cross so that that person would be delivered from judgment? Nobody. So if you really wanted to argue that God is unjust, you would say, yeah, God is absolutely unjust. He's unjust because he chose anybody. But God's not unjust. He's merciful and he's gracious. And so we have this privilege of being specially elected. We're chosen. No, election humbles us because nobody deserves it. The choice by God to rescue us from darkness, not, it also helps us. When, when things are tough, we know that, yeah, even though life is hard, God has, has rescued me. He's called me. I'm one of his children. Even though it doesn't seem like I feel or know his love, I know that he loves me. And finally, it doesn't just help us, 
but it honors God who rescues us. Paul says it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Nobody deserves it, but he is a gracious and good God. Then there's our significant position. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, this is kind of hard for us. I mean, royal and priesthood. We don't know much about kings, and we don't know diddly squat about priests. So it's like, how do you uh, make sense of that if you're living in 21st century America? Well, we're a royal priesthood. On Mount Sinai which in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God had promised Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests. But because of their rebellion, they forfeited that kingship and that reign, temporarily at least. And Paul declares that those who trust in Christ alone, now they're the royal priests. We are the royal priests if we're trusting in Christ for salvation. And there are two aspects, I think, that I would like to draw out of this. What does it mean to be a royal priest? First of all, what did priests do in the Old Testament? They made sacrifices, right? And they, they, they went into the presence of God. See, here's the deal. If, if, if we are a child of God, we have access into the presence of God. Unfettered access, unmitigated access, unrestricted access into the presence of God. And we offer to him sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices do we offer to God? We offer him the sacrifices of our our complete bodies. This is Romans chapter 12. Your bodies is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Our minds, our hands, our eyes, our feet, everything sacrificed for him and for his service. We serve the living king with access to his presence, which those who aren't his children don't have access We sacrifice to God with our prayers, the prayers of the saints in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, like incense rising up to God. We sacrifice, we offer sacrifices to God with our love for others, is Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and offered himself up and sacrificed himself. A pleasing aroma to God. That's what we're supposed to do. Access is not future. See, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact, I do, I lose sight of the fact that I can, I'm in a relationship with God, I have access to God right now. We have access to God and to be in His presence right now. Um, there is a place called Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. And some of you have been to the Biltmore uh, down in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Some of you don't know anything of what I'm talking about. But this is called the Schoenbrunn Palace. It was built by the, the Habsburgs, in, uh, had in, lived here. This place is massive. And I thought, what would it be like to have unfettered, unmitigated, unrestricted access at the time the king was alive into the presence of the king? Just walk right in and everybody just says no problem and you go right in there and you have access to the king. And I think, you know, we have access to the king of kings into the presence of God himself. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, is that by, by virtue of our union with Christ, we have ability to come into the very presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find grace to uh, obtain mercy and find grace to help at the time of need. We can come right there. So I don't know what your situation is or 
what your concern is, we can go to God into the presence of our Heavenly Father and crawl up on His lap and sit there and talk to Him and say, Lord, you know, just I need some help right now. Or I just thank you for being who you are. You have this unfettered access to God. And then not only do we have access, but we have authority. We're royal priests. We share in the inheritance with Christ the King. As his children, Galatians chapter 4, we're no longer slaves, but we're sons, fellow heirs with Christ. And as fellow heirs, we're fellow royalty, and we will reign with him, and we will reign with him during the millennial kingdom. But then isn't it interesting, interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you know, you, you guys are able to make spiritually wise decisions. We're, we're able to make royal wisdom decisions now because we're God's children. We're this royal priesthood. Then there's our spiritual sanctification. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A holy nation. It, it was rebellion, again, that led the, the nation of Israel to forfeit their privileged position as a holy nation. And they will one day regain it when they repent and turn and all come to the Lord. Uh, at the end. But their depravity led to the Gentiles' blessings in Romans chapters 9 through 11. We've been grafted in. We've been able to become and declared this holy nation, this people of God's possession. When Israel returns to the Lord during the millennium, they will, and many will come to Christ, they will, Ezekiel 36, they'll become a holy nation again. But until then, uh, we've been able to be declared this holy nation, this privilege. What does it mean to be holy? Set apart is the literal word, uh, one literal translation, from that which is common or profane. We live in a common and profane world, and we've been set apart. The one word in the theological term, which is a biblical term, is sanctified. We've been set apart, sanctified. And there's two aspects to this. We have this position as being holy. And this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has perfected for all times those who have been sanctified. They've been set apart. We are declared righteous and holy before God. That's the sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. We'd be declared right before God. Well, that's positionally we are sanctified, but we are progressively, practically sanctified. Okay, that's a mouthful. We are becoming more like Christ practically. We are declared to be positionally, we are holy, but we're becoming more like him as we allow the Spirit of God to work in us and through us, we become more like him. Just think of it this way. There's this huge, out on Hickman Road, if you take Hickman and go straight west, you go across the interstate, there's this huge, I mean, it's a barn bigger than any barn, and it's a lifetime fitness, okay? Thinking, man... I mean, just walking around the place, you'd be fit. So let's just imagine that I have a lifetime membership to Lifetime Fitness. When do I not become a member of Lifetime Fitness if I have a lifetime membership? 
I'm not sure I'm using too many negatives, but we never not become a member. We're always a member. Okay, two negatives makes a positive, right? So we're always a member of Lifetime Fitness if we have a lifetime membership. But just because I have a membership doesn't mean I'm fit. Not unless I go there and work out. And if we're a child of God, we are a lifetime member of the family. We are a holy nation set apart. But only as the Spirit of God works in us and as we cooperate and work with the Spirit of God do we become more and more physically, no, spiritually fit. It's Philippians chapter 2. I think we have that if we, yeah, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my, pre- now, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Notice it's work it out, and God works it out. So we work together, and as we work together, we become more and more like the person of Jesus. And then finally, there's our special possession. You are a people of God's own possession. Again, the promise made to Israel in, at Sinai in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, and in Deuteronomy, is applied to New Testament believers. All of God's human beings, now get this, I think this is true, all of God's human beings are his possession by virtue of creation. God created us. So we're his possession by virtue of creation. But only those who have new life in Christ are his possession by purchase. Only believers are his possession by purchase. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and verse 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You can write this down, but Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 talks about the purchase price was the blood of Christ. We've been purchased with the, the blood of Christ. God paid the price so that all who believe would be rescued and become his possession. And some of you go, well, I don't want to be called God's possession. That's kind of demeaning and distracting and despicable. No, it's actually delightful. Jay Leno has a great car collection, right? That's what I've heard. So this is a picture of some of Jay's cars, not all of them, but just a few of Jay Leno's cars. Now I have a question. If you were a car, would you want to be in Jay's collection? Or would you want to be owned by the guy that I knew that used to stick 400-pound calves in the back, of, back seat of his car and drive around? I think I'd want to be in Jay's collection. See, God's possession is to be in the possession of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who only wants what's best for us, who only knows what's best for us, and who only loves us and cares for us. There's no greater privilege than to be the people of God's own possession. That's our privileges. And our privileges are nothing we deserve. There's nothing we earned, nothing we have of virtue, nothing we have of value that would cause God to bestow these privileges upon us. But privileges 
come to us for a purpose. And that's the end of verse 9. What does it say the purpose is? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are privileged for a purpose, and the purpose that we have is to proclaim. Proclaim is a word, I, I think it's only used here in the New Testament, this particular Greek word. And it means to advertise, to publish. Okay? So we're, we're, having a, uh, we're starting a new series next week. And uh, the series is on, on, on what's, what's eating Jonah. Okay? So this is the ad for the series. All right? It's publishing what we're going to be proclaiming. All right? Well, what are we supposed to proclaim? We have a duty to demonstrate and we have a duty to declare the excellencies of God. What are the excellencies of God? This is a word that's used in the New American Standard. I'm not sure I didn't check the ESV what it says, but the excellencies of God, which Peter Davids in his commentary says his, his, includes his activity in creation and his miracle of redemption. The excellencies of God is all that God has done. It's his marvelous, great, and glorious works, particularly his work in creation, but also specifically his work in redemption, in rescuing people who are destined for an eternity apart from God and delivering them from that destiny into the kingdom of, of God. It was almost a year ago, a little over a year ago, when those... Uh, Boys in Thailand were caught in a, in a cave and they were rescued from this cave. And now, a year later, they're, they're meeting with some of the guys, the seals that, that swam in and rescued them. And they're proclaiming the excellencies of those who delivered them from darkness and brought them into the light. And that's what God saved us for. You know, the church of Jesus Christ exists for the proclamation of the truth. We've been saved to share our salvation story. Not to sit and soak in it and simmer in it and steam in it and stew in it, but to share it with the world that needs to know what Christ has done for them. That's what God's called us to. That's what God delivered us for. These boys are singing the power, praises of their powerful deliverers, and that's what we're supposed to do too. That's the motivation, is our privileges give us a purpose, and our purpose is to proclaim. Then there's the message itself, and it's kind of wrapped up in the end of verse 9. What is our message of good news? And what predominates here, what, what motivates the proclamation is redemption. That's the essence of it. The redemption story. Now what is redemption? Redemption is the price of release. It's buying something. It's paying the price to release it. So if you have something and I want it, I pay the price to release it from your possession into my possession. And the redemption, there's two powerful works of God. 
that are articulated in the end of verse 9 and end of verse 10 that bring more privileges but also actually define what we're supposed to proclaim. And the first is the salvation through our Savior. He says, called. In verse 9, the excellencies of him who called us, this is the effectual call of God's Spirit, which brings us to belief. He called us out of darkness. What is darkness? The spiritual inability for moral rightness, okay? If you're in the darkness, you can't do what is morally right. It is death. It is inability to do the moral good. And so, unbelievers live in and love the darkness. We talked about this in the first service this morning. John chapter 3, verse 19. Men love darkness rather than light. Men not only live in the darkness, they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. We like the darkness so we can do what we think nobody can see. And, uh, I like it, you know, it's like uh, you put a sack over your head and then do whatever you want and you think nobody sees because you can't see them. But God sees. And so the men love darkness. Unbelievers live in it. God mercifully and miraculously called us out of this darkness, out of this death, into his glorious light or life. Our family went on vacation uh, several years ago. We were in Jewel Cave in South Dakota. Okay? We were in there like for an hour, hour and a half. And it was like, oh, this is getting... And we came out of Jewel Cave and it was sun was shining. I was like, whoo, good deal. The sun is still here. After being in the darkness, coming into the light. And so what God does for the people of God spiritually is what our leaving Jewel Cave did for us physically. It brings us into the light. Now, this is Colossians. Paul said it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. His beloved son. What does it mean? God brought us into the light. Well, there's a couple of things that I think of. First of all, that God had to work in our hearts. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. You can read it, write it down, read it later if you want. But it's a fascinating passage. So if we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light is the one who's shown in our hearts to, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, folks. Every person walking the face of the earth is in darkness. And only God and His Spirit can open their eyes to see the light, the truth of who Jesus is. Only the Spirit of God opens our eyes, or anyone's eyes, to see that we would admit that, yes, we are a sinful person. And our sin separates us from a holy God. And we deserve his judgment. That we would believe that, that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross and rose again to pay the penalty that I deserve. That I would believe, be, be saved and I must trust in that. And then I would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only the Spirit of God can open our eyes to see that and bring us to confess that. that, that that's the only thing that happens. So, he, the Spirit of God 
opens the eyes of unbelievers to be saved, and he illumines the eyes of believers to be transformed. And we talked about this a little bit too in the first service. This is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path to show me the way that I should live. And so there is this salvation that comes to us from the Father. He illumines our eyes so we behave. The Spirit of God opens the unbelievers' lives so they might believe. He opens the believers' eyes so that we might behave like God's children. And then there is the sympathy from our Father if we read verse 10. And verse 10 is really basically a quote of Hosea chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. The children of Israel again. They were living in sin. And so they were the people of God. And God says, okay, I'm going to set you aside because of your rebellion. And now this is particularly applied to the church of Jesus Christ and the Gentiles in particular. Israel's rebellion would cause the compassion of God to be removed. But someday in the millennial kingdom, when they repent and many are saved, it'll, it'll be brought back to them and they'll, they'll enjoy it again. Gentiles had previously not known what it was to be the people of God. I don't know, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. To be the people of God, and you are not a people. It's interesting because Hosea was told to marry a harlot. I want you to marry this woman, and then you're going to have two kids. Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama. Not my people and no compassion in Hebrew. And then later, I'm going to restore you, and there'll be Ami and Ruhama, my people, and compassion. We have been privileged by God's grace, God's choice, not our virtue, to be called his people. He saved us. The sympathy of the Father is his compassion. Mercy is what? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. It's not getting the punishment that I deserve. And so God in his mercy has made those who were not his people his people so that anyone who would put their faith or their trust in Christ would become a people of God, a person of God, and experience the compassion of God. And Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great compassion, his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. I was in Haiti uh, several years ago, probably five years ago now, and uh, after the earthquake in 2010, there were some people that went down and they, they started building these Sukup safety homes. They're little miniature grain bins that people live in and specifically designed. And I think I told you about the last hurricane that went through Haiti, sustained straight line winds of 145 miles an hour, and there are 205 of these uh, that have been built. Not one of them was blown over or blown down. There was a whole village of people that would stand up like toothpicks inside of one, like 60 people inside of one, and they survived the, the hurricane because they were inside. Now, who decides who gets to have one? There are thousands of people in Haiti. 
compassion, mercifully, some of them have been chosen to have this privilege of living within these homes. By the grace of God, they are chosen and they are saved. The same is true for us by the mercy of God. Some are, have been chosen, some have been saved. There is a motivation for, self, for sharing the gospel because we're saved. There is the message that we're supposed to share. Salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. And then I want us to consider for just a minute or two, what, what is our method for sharing? I mean, how do we share this good news? What, what would we do? How would we go about proclaiming the message of the gospel? I like the story about D.L. Moody was preaching one time, and a, a woman came up to him after, and she says, You know, well, Mr. Moody, I don't much like your method of evangelism. And he says, Well, ma'am, he says, tell me about your method. What method of evangelism do you have? Look down, I don't have one. And he goes, Well, I sort of like my method of evangelism better than your method of not doing it. My question for us is how do we do it? How do we as a church do it? How do we as individuals go about the business of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness? I've got some suggestions. Uh, first of all, I think we should begin by asking God for opportunities. And you can write Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 down, okay? Let's ask God. You see, if 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6 is true, that God, who said, let there be light, is the one who's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If he has to open the eyes of the unbelieving, then we best be praying that God would give us opportunities and that God would be opening the eyes of the unbelieving. That means seems to make sense. Colossians chapter 4 is devote yourselves to prayer. And you keep alerting it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open a door for the word that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which all, we also have been imprisoned, that we might make it clear. Paul says, if Paul needed prayer, we need prayers. I think I've told you about Doris Eckblad. She was a missionary to Taiwan. I used to love getting her prayer letters, and I've heard her speak a few times. She would always say, I pray for me that God would give me, lead me to open, uh, to prepared hearts. That's what she said. Lead me to prepared hearts. And so we, people would pray that God would lead her to prepared hearts, and she would pray that God would lead her to prepared hearts. And then every time we got a missionary letter, she'd list all the people that she had got a chance to show the gospel with whose hearts were prepared. And so let's ask God, let's, I don't know about you, but do you have any neighbors, do you have any friends, any coworkers, any family members that you are praying that will come to faith in Jesus Christ? I, I, I do. Well, maybe I don't always pray for them, but I have them, so let me, well, maybe we should start praying. You know, you can pray for me. I'm going to my aunt's funeral tomorrow. And some of my cousins uh, I'm pretty sure they don't know Christ. My family, they don't know Christ. I was praying this morning and praying yesterday. God, give me an opportunity to share Christ with these people and open the doors of opportunity. We ask God. That seems so simple, but we don't do it. And yet we should. And then secondly, how about if we adopt an approach? I mean, okay, we pray and then God gives us the opportunity, but what do we say? How do we go about it? I heard just in a podcast this last week, a guy by the name of Rice Brooks, and this is a, a simplified thing. It's just SALT. It's an acronym, SALT. Start a conversation. That sounds pretty simple, right? Well, start a conversation. 
That's kind of intimidating for some of us. For some of us, it's not intimidating. But you see, you don't have to be a quote-unquote gifted evangelist to start a conversation. Talk to somebody and ask them about their family. Ask them about their occupation. Ask them about their religious background uh, down the road a ways. Don't start with that, but just, you know, tell me about your family. Tell me, where'd you grow up? Where, where are you from? I mean, we do that, so that's not all that hard, but start a conversation and then listen. We can ask, them, ask people, how's, how's life treating you? You know? And then listen. Do we listen to people? I'm convinced that most of the time I forget people's names is because I'm more interested in my response than the answer to my question. I think that's true of every one of us. We say, well, I'm not really good with names. No, because I'm focused on me. No, if I was really focused on you, then I would remember your name. So listen, for their struggles, for their challenges, for their hardships, for what's going on in their life. And, and then not only do, we, do we, we start a conversation, we ask good questions. Then we listen to the answers to the questions, and then we tell the story. Well, what are you going to tell? If someone came up to you right now after the service and said, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, could you share with me how I could become a Christian? Now, I think that's happened to me once. So it's probably not going to happen. What would you say? What would you say to that person? You got a napkin and a good pen. And that's it. You know, this is all the great ideas in the world, right? Say one on a, with a napkin and a pen. How are you going to share Christ with them? Well, you can use the Romans road. You know, you're going to share the bridge illustration with them. You're going to use the ABC method. Bad news, good news. And you're going, well, I don't know anything you just said. Well, that's okay. Could you share the gospel that God created us perfect and that we are sinful now by nature and by choice and deserving his wrath and God by his grace sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the debt that we owe so that if we believe in him and trust and turn from our sins we'll be saved and then give verses for that well if you don't know that uh, I I didn't say this but on the 13th of October I'm going to be in the fellowship hall and and I'm going to ask some other guys maybe to help me we're going to do some put some feet on the ground some traction on this so if you'd have no clue what a method to share you don't have an idea of a gospel presentation you don't know what you would say come what questions would I ask I don't know how to turn the conversation to spiritual things I can start a conversation I can ask good questions but I don't know how to transition into how actually how to talk about Jesus you just come on the 13th, and we'll, we'll start walking through some of that stuff, give you some ideas. But this is for everyone. This is the people we meet on the street. This is the people that we do business with. This is the people in our family that we're just trying to care about them. And then the last thing is just act on it. Just do it. You know, as we break bread, we, we, we are called to share a story because we've been privileged. That's our calling. We, we haven't been given this privilege just to sit on it. But we break bread because we remember these vivid reminders of the mercy we have received so that we're motivated to share that mercy with other people. Because unlike other people, we don't want to be the only exclusive people in the kingdom of God. We don't want to be the only people who are going to heaven. We want heaven to be populated with as many people as can be. And so we focus on 
the cross of Christ and his sacrifice for us so that we're challenged to share the love of Christ, show the love of Christ, and share the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I pray in my own heart that you would give me boldness and courage and wisdom to start conversations, to ask good questions, to listen and then to tell the story, to tell the story of you rescuing me from darkness and bringing me into your light. I ask that you would do that for all of us and for us as a church. And I pray that you would uh, raise the spiritual temperature for evangelism and discipleship in our body, for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. I ask that as we take this bread and drink this cup, that everyone here who knows Jesus would be welcome to do so and that they would do so after reflecting and rejoicing in what their salvation means to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.